Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. I'm an alcoholic. My name's Kathy. And you already got me teared up before I even got up here. Um, I was grateful to see Claudia put the Kleenexes up under the thing because I may need one. I'm, I'm a, they call me one of the crybabies in the group. Um, my sobriety date is April 28th of 2000. It's not my first, but I pray to God it's my last. I don't think I could, uh, I don't think I have another sobering up in me. Um, you know, I've got plenty of white chips and Alcoholics Anonymous and, uh, I don't think I can handle another one. I don't think I can make it back to Alcoholics Anonymous to the program to save my life. I'd like to thank the committee for inviting me down here to uh, share with you my experience, strength, and hope. I do want to have a conversation with whoever's responsible for the baskets in the room, though. There, uh, Claudia? Okay. Now, see, I come down here to Texas. I'm here, you know, all that Pate's Pecani sauce, whatever, you know, talking about that stuff. And there's something called peach salsa. And I just cracked up. I said, man, that sounds like it comes from New York City, not Texas. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. It was, it was, we've had a great time since we've been here, me and my husband, Mike. Uh, we come in on Thursday, and we were able to spend some time with our mom and Paul, we call here in, in Dallas, and then came up here yesterday and had a great time. And and I want to thank the guys from Midland that kept us up all night long, and um, uh, we had a great time. At, you know, I think it's absolutely, I love what Alcoholics Anonymous has done to me and for me. Um, I love everything about it. I know I have a long way to go, and I've got a lot to learn, but uh, I love what you've done to me and for me. I love the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll never want to go anywhere else. I don't want to be anywhere else except with you. Um, I'll be all right here in a minute. Um, get some things out of the way. I was taught to dress when I got behind a podium because uh, my sponsor said I needed to act like a lady. You know, I was anything but a lady when I got to you. Uh, I was taught to clean my mouth up in a meeting and outside a meeting because uh you know, when I came to you people, all I knew was four-letter words, and my sponsor said that was just pure ego when I used stuff that I, I didn't know that stuff when I came in here, you know, and and I had to be heard, and, um, you know, and I'm going to try to do that to the best of my ability. I have a home group. It's called the Big Town Group. We are in the little town of Etowah, North Carolina. Uh, my mailing address is in Penrose, North Carolina, and our mailing, our home is in Hendersonville, North Carolina, so... It's a little small, tiny mountain town, and it's in the western um, mountains of the western North Carolina. It's just absolutely beautiful uh, where we're at. I love my home group. We, of course, I think one of the hardest things for a member of Alcoholics Anonymous to do is move away from where you got sober. Um, and I found that I will never, ever find a home group like my first home group. And when you move, nobody does it right. Of course, they don't care how they do it there to you, you know, I mean, but nobody does it right. And uh, so all we did was we started a new meeting, uh, me and my husband and a, a little 22-year-old guy named Luke, I think he's 22, 24-year-old guy named Luke who has four years of sobriety and has more tradition in his little pinky than a lot of people I know in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm very grateful for that guy. And uh, he put a fire under our honey, and we started that home group, and it's a very structured home group. Uh, 
and uh, and I love it. And I have a job in that home group, and I have a girls that I sponsor there, and they have jobs in that home group, and and I'm just real grateful for that. I believe that uh, I love what the AA pamphlet says about a home group. The difference between a uh, an AA meeting and a home group, you know. And uh, I can't, I never can quote anything word for word like. Some people can. I never have been able to, but I got the gist of it. You know, and, and a meeting is where you go for one hour and 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 be together. But a home group is where you get involved in each other's lives outside the the meeting. And that's what we do. Well, we decided that we want the there's a part of our of our fifth tradition that says carry the message and uh our home group decided we wanted to carry the message instead of waiting for somebody to come to us to give it to them. So we're in the jails and the detoxes, and uh, we go to other meetings, and we go to functions together, and we go out to eat together, and we're involved in each other's lives. And it's absolutely wonderful because they it's starting to become, what I really love about it is instead of being my home group, it's starting to become our home group for me, and that's a big deal for me. Um, I was born July 7th, 1962, uh, in Spartanburg, South Carolina, very redneckish town, and, uh, where, where's Marty at? Ain't no hillbillies in Kentucky, Marty. <laughs> well, London, Kentucky, there might be, but not in the area you were thinking about. Over in our area, they call us rednecks, and, uh, I'm a full-fledged redneck woman. Uh, <laughs> most everything I got on came from Walmart, and, uh, we love Walmart, <laughs> but uh, and I was raised. Uh, I have uh, um, there's eight kids. I'm the second of eight. My mom and dad uh, were married, had five kids, and then my dad remarried and had three kids of his own. And uh, and I'm the second of those. Um, I'm not going to stand up here and bash my family anymore. I used to do that. I don't believe that I turned out to be an alcoholic in the way that I. Uh, I believe that I'm an alcoholic because of me and my personality. And it's the only relief I could find for how I was feeling. And uh, and it worked for me for a long time. And I'm not going to stand up here and bash my family. I believe that my mom and daddy did absolutely the best that they could with what they had. And um, my dad drank a lot. He drank, drank Jack Daniels and Pat's Blue Ribbon beer. And uh, he always had a case of Pat's Blue Ribbon in the uh, refrigerator and Jack Daniels up under the kitchen cabinet. Well, my dad never was violent when he drank. He was when he when Daddy drank. He was always real happy, upbeat kind of person. And except when Mama came around, you know, and then she kind of cut him down. And when he wasn't drinking, though, he always stayed away from us. He was never happy. He stayed pretty much by himself. And um, so I never really seen a lot of violence in our home. I never seen. I never related anything that happened in our home to alcoholism or alcohol. I just knew that when Daddy drank, he had a lot of fun. And I love my Daddy. I want to be just like my Daddy. Um, and I followed in his footsteps many places. And, uh, but, um, you know, my mom had these five kids and, and my dad drank a lot and sometimes he was never home. Now, I don't remember my first drink. I remember, you know, I always get taking a sip of beer off his beer or taking a little sip of his drink and nothing really major. I do remember how sickly of a child I was back then. They had what they call paragoric. Man, that stuff is good stuff. Um, I was a very sickly child, and Mama gave me paragoric a lot. None of the rest of the kids liked it, but I did. And, um, you know, and then after paragoric went away, there became, NyQuil came along, and I became a NyQuil kid. I was very sickly. And, um, <laughs> um, 
I know that I started acting. I, I had a lot of character defects before I ever found alcohol. And, um, you know, when I was three years old, I used to steal stuff from my aunt. I don't know. We lived with them. I don't know where I was going to put it, but I was stealing when I was three years old. I was lying and manipulating. My mom and my dad always lived with my grandma and my grandpa because of my dad's drinking. Lots of times we didn't have anywhere to live. We'd go back to grandma's and, and, uh, you know, and I would manipulate mama and grandma. And, uh, and I learned how to do that at a very early age. I didn't like school when I started going to school. I made pretty good grades. First, second, third grade, I reckon, um, you know, but I didn't like school. I, I was very much a loner. I didn't like being around people. I didn't like yelling. My mom yelled a lot, and I didn't like being around yelling, so I always stayed by myself a lot, stayed in the woods. I absolutely love the country. I love being out in the woods, and, and I stayed out there a lot by myself. Didn't like being around people. And um, probably about 12 years old, I met a girl named Janet when I was in school, and, and uh Janet didn't like being around people either, and she and I started hanging out together. And um, Like I said, I don't remember my first drink. I remember I would take sips out of Daddy's Jack Daniel bottle under the kitchen cabinet, and then I'd fill it back up with water, and Daddy would blame Mama for watering her drink, his drinks down. And I would shotgun them past blue ribbons before I even knew what shotgunning was. I'd poke a hole in it, suck the beer out of it, and put it back in the refrigerator. And Daddy thought he had defective cans. And um, <laughs> I guess, you know, seven, eight, nine-year-old girl ain't going to steal and poke no hole in no beer, you know. Um, but anyway, that's it. And I'm sure there were many times that I had drank enough to to feel it, but I don't remember those times. Uh, I remember Janet's sister got married, and at 13 years old, I went to their uh, wedding reception, and they lived in a trailer park, one of them drunk trailer parks. I don't know if y'all got drunk trailer parks here in Texas, but we got drunk trailer parks all over South and North Carolina. Um, and I can remember like it was yesterday. We walked in that door, and there was cases of Pat's Blue Ribbon in the corner, and uh, we started drinking on those things, and, and I ended up passing out. I don't remember too much about the night, but what I do remember was the next day when we went to school, Janet told everybody how funny I was. You know, and I love the part in the book where it talks about when we drank, we become dangerously antisocial. So that wasn't the case with me. When I drank, I became dangerously social. <laughs> and that's when I kind of came out was... Um, you know, I loved alcohol. I loved the taste of it. I didn't have to acquire the taste for it. I loved everything it did, it, it stood for. I loved the smell, the taste, how it made me feel. I loved everything about it. Um, you know, and, and I drank every opportunity that I got, and it was very easy to drink. With My mom worried about my dad all the time, and my dad hardly ever at home, and all the kids around. You know, it was real easy to get a hold of the, to alcohol, and um and the only thing I can sit here and tell you is that where it, the road that it took me down is it took me down pretty quick. Um, you know, at 14 years old, I was in the streets doing whatever I had to do to get whatever I had to get. At 15 years old, my parents didn't know what to do with me. My probation officer didn't know what to do with me, so they ended up throwing me in a little nut house. You know, and um, I didn't even remember that until I got sober way later and, and heard somebody talking about this place, this nut house they were in called Marshall Pickens. And I went, wait, I was there. <laughs> and I had to call my mom and ask her about that. And she said, yeah, you were there. They gave you shock treatment and filled you full. You did a little shuffle and you were gone within two weeks. And see, that's what I was very good at. I was always good at running. No matter what happened, I was always good at running. Um, 
I didn't like where I was at. I would just run. didn't matter. So at 15, I'm in this nut house. At 16, I'm in a little treatment center. And 17, I'm in a juvenile prison for armed robbery. And, uh, you know, and I, I ended up getting out of, I didn't stay in that little prison, but about six months. And, and when I got out of there, I found what they call the, the beer joints uh, in Gaffney, South Carolina, back in the woods. And this place with cops wouldn't even go at that time period. And they, you never got ID'd back then. And 18 was a legal age when I was eight, when I was that little. I never thought I'd be saying way back then. <laughs> I remember my mama used to do that. Well, when I was young, and I used to hate that. Um, see, but I found these places called the county in the Long Branch, and it was a place where you went in. And in South Carolina, they cut everybody off at midnight. They closed the doors. They locked the doors. They'd lock 20 of us up in there, and you didn't come out in the daylight. Sometimes you didn't come out for days. And uh, I call that place, those places bars. And my dad was, me and my dad was talking one day, and he said, honey, them things ain't bars. Them are beer joints, you know. Too classy, too not classy enough to be a bar. And, you know, we had to pickle pig's feet up on the bar and the deviled eggs, and that was your diet for a long time. <laughs> if you did eat anything. Uh, and when I found place, those dark places with the music and the laughter and, and the guys, I loved everything about the bars, too. Had a lot of fun. I never ever seen that that uh, I had a problem with alcohol. I truly believe that alcohol saved my life more than one time. I believe that if I hadn't have found the booze when I found it at 13 years old, that I'd have probably been a teenage suicide victim. And later, after nine years of sobriety, seven years of sobriety in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, two years trying to find my way, trying to hang around and, and hang in here. Alcohol became an option for me. Drinking alcohol became an option for me. I was either alcohol or kill myself, and I chose booze. Um, and that's just how I feel about it. Um, anyway, I um, I don't remember a whole lot from the time I was 17 years old up until I was about 26. It was a lot of blackouts, a lot of waking up in strange places with strange people. Um, a lot of things I'm not very proud of, and I'm not going to stand up here and give you a whole fist step from here. But I remember the very first meeting I walked into, this lady gave me a little bit of hope that night because I always thought I was morally bad. I thought I was just had morally, I was morally bad. And she, she said those words that night and said, I, I'm not morally bad, I'm spiritually sick. And thank God that I know that today. And she gave me hope that night. Uh, in and out of jail for a lot of thing, a lot of different things. Never really hang around my family. Um, I can remember about 19 years old when I finally, maybe once a year I'd call my mom when I wasn't drunk. Most of the time when I called my mom, I was drunk at three o'clock in the afternoon and I'd tell her how good I was doing, you know, and not having anywhere to live, you know, but I'm gonna tell her how good I'm doing at three o'clock in the morning. And um, But I hadn't seen my mom in about a year, and we say, we don't think, my M.O. is I am not hurting anybody. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. I'm not hurting anybody. And I call my, I go up to my mom's house, and, and I walk up, and she comes running out the door and punches me dead in the face. She was going the next day to identify Jane Doe that was in, uh, that she thought was her daughter, that they had found, that they didn't know who it was. And as many instances I can tell you about, how I did what I did to my family and the people around me because I know somebody paid a price every time I picked up a drink. Um, 
Never could have relationships with people. Uh, something about drinking in my clothes didn't go together. Uh, oh, Juanita, I can't believe I said that either. Thank you. Um, but I never could have a relationship with anybody. It didn't matter what it was. I never could have a relationship with people because by the time, you know, at, at 20, 21 years old, my drinking changed. I went from a very happy-go-lucky, you know, um, just fun, whatever, woo-hoo kind of drunk to uh, I became very violent when I drank. And I would go in these bars and, and I'd pick the biggest, baddest. Now we fight women. I don't know what it was, but I'd pick the biggest, baddest dude out, and I'd always start a fight, fight with them. Somehow or another, and I'd end up cutting somebody. And I'm not very proud of that, but that's where my drinking took me. And uh, I hear y'all, y'all shoot them down here. We cut them over. <laughs> you know, and I started doing a lot of things that I'm not very proud of in that time period. Uh, like I said, I can't remember too many time, too many things that happened. I just know it was a constant blackout. By the time I was 18 years old, I was shaking, having to have a morning drink. Um, you know, and, and by the time I was 19, 20 years old, I was in a constant blackout, maybe a day or two, maybe three, once every five months, I might not have drank anything. And um, and I never really thought that alcohol had anything to do with it. I thought I was born in the wrong place in the wrong time. I was around the wrong people. And I always thought it just it was bad luck. I was dealt a bad hand in life. And I never had, I never believed that what I was doing had anything to do with the alcohol or the other things I was doing. Um, and I'm standing here and tell you that I did everything there was to do in every way there was to do it. And, uh, I highly respect our singleness of purpose and I believe in identification in Alcoholics Anonymous. And some people say that we don't have, that we have a lot of, uh, that we don't have any true alcoholics anymore. And I don't believe that. When too long ago I was sitting in a meeting and, and, um, talking about a lot of other things and there was a little 75 year old lady sitting in there and, um, she got up halfway through the meeting and, and she walked out and I walked out behind her and I introduced myself and I asked her, I said, well, why are you leaving? She said, I don't belong here. I didn't do that. I don't belong here. And she could be dead now because of that, because she didn't wish she wasn't able to identify. Okay, I'll continue on. Um, anyway, uh, 26 years old, September 5th, 1988, I woke up in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina with a stolen van. I knew whose it was. I took it. I don't remember much about getting down there. It was probably about a four-day blackout. I came to this morning, and uh, people I wouldn't even hang around with wouldn't even hang around with me anymore. And my hair was down in my waist. It was slicked down. I had clothes on. I don't even know whose they were. You could stand them up in, well, well they wouldn't even need a corner. Um, you know, and, and, um, and I was shaking so bad. And I thought, well, if I go turn myself in, I'll get three square meals a day. You know, have a roof over my head. Maybe I can get my GED. And when I get out, maybe my mama will take me back home and I can get my life together. And there are many times in my, in my drinking that I wanted to get better and I wanted to change. And some of you or some, my mama or somebody that I meet, some Samaritan I meet on the way would take me in their home and, and try to help me. And all I do is take from them. I would steal from them. I'm just casing your place. That's all I'm doing. And, um, I woke up in Myrtle Beach and, and like I said, I had this thought, you know, and I go up to the Myrtle Beach police station and, and, uh, turn myself in and, 
you know, here I am, I stole the van, locked me up, you know, and, and she said, well, honey, I ain't nothing I can do for you. And y'all, that's pretty bad when jail won't even take you. <laughs> well, and I've never really heard of Alcoholics Anonymous except when Kate got sober on Young and Restless. Sometime I've seen that, and, you know. And my little treatment center I was in when I was 16 years old, I can remember some long-haired counselor standing in my face telling me I had some deep, dark secret to pull out of me. I don't remember you know, anything about Alcoholics Anonymous or anything else. Um, that was probably just what I chose, cho- what I had chosen to listen to. But, um, you know, and, and she said, honey, there's nothing we can do to help you. And I broke down and asked for the first time ever, I, I thought I might, I told her I might have a problem with alcohol and I just couldn't go back out on the streets anymore and I needed help. And she said, well, honey, I might know somebody can help you. Go sit, stand out by that phone and, and the phone rang. And it was a, a guy, and he told me to meet him at this little restaurant, and he'd come pick me up, and he did. And, and I, you know, and I always thought my knight in shining armor was going to be somebody like The Rock or Triple H, you know. And, and uh, my knight in shining armor was a little old white-haired man about that tall, had a fake cigar coming out of his mouth. And his name was Roy McCormick. God bless him. He had 28 years of sobriety the day he 12-stepped me. Um, he took me to an N.A. meeting. He said, I look too bad to be an alcoholic. <laughs> It's been a long time. I quit all that other stuff, you know, and alcohol is what I what I had on a regular basis, and um, um, I had it when I came too. I had it when I went to bed, and if I didn't have it, I went and found it, and I found a way to get it. Um, but anyway, he took me to this meeting, and thank God for the Al-Anon there that night. She had took, taken her son to that meeting, and I'll be forever grateful for Vera. You know, um, there were many women there, and and the Al-Anon is the one that. She knew I didn't have anywhere to go, and she took me in her home. And I'll be forever grateful for her for doing that. And um, her and Roy detoxed me on blackstrap molasses and orange juice. And that's the nastiest stuff. I still kind of gag when I even hear them. We ordered, Mike ordered orange juice this morning for breakfast, and I, I could feel it coming from the gut. <laughs> but, um, you know, um, and, and I had what they call mild DTs. Um, you know, I sleep. I, I couldn't stay asleep, I couldn't stay awake, and I couldn't hardly, I mean, you know, and that god-awful alcoholic diarrhea we have, nobody wants to talk about that, but God Almighty, that was some horrible stuff. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> it was, Juanita. <laughs> and, um, but anyway, the next night he come and got me, Roy come and got me, and he took me to a meeting called the Primary Purpose Group, and he said, I'm going to take you to this group where there's a lot of women, and he said, you go in there and you get behind them and you do what they do, and you might be able to stay sober. And I'm so grateful that I fell into the Primary Purpose Group. I walked on one side, and men were sitting on one side, women were sitting on the other. Of course, y'all know I had to sit with the men. I wasn't going to sit with the women. Something about women, we hate women when we get here. Um, I thought y'all wanted something. Y'all, y'all were going to take something I had. I didn't have nothing, but you were going to get it. And, um, you know, and thank God for those women. Before I left, they had numbers. They gave me numbers. And, uh, you know, and I didn't even have a toothbrush. I didn't have a hairbrush. I didn't have anything. And those ladies went in their closet, and they gave me clothes. And, and uh, they appointed me a sponsor. And, and uh, God, that was funny. God bless Debbie. I'll tell you, Debbie was uh, the, you know, I'm, I'm a street drunk. I can survive in the streets, you know. I, I, and I looked like it when I came in. I talked like it and I dressed like it. And, uh, you know, and Debbie was a reporter for the Sun News and she wore those 
poofed up hairdos and the pointy shoes and the little scarves and drove a little Mazda Miata and she was very prissy and <laughs> and you know and I didn't think that she was going to do good for me at all and and uh, but they appointed her for me and I'll be forever grateful because Debbie taught me about the unconditional love of the woman walking in the door and I, and I thank her from the bottom of my heart from that because she didn't judge me you know I come to a meeting disappropriately dressed and she would kind of say honey you know you don't have to dress like that anymore you don't need that kind of attention it's okay to dress like a lady what I'm not a lady I'll never be a lady you know but because of the way that she told me you know um and that she helped me it really helped me change it really did and and um they got me involved in service work and and uh you know, when I ended up meeting a guy, actually the NA meeting that I was at, um, that I, that first one I met, I met a guy and, uh, we ended up getting married after a year of sobriety and started dating him. I'm, you know, and some people say it's not good to get in a relationship in the first year and, and, uh, and I tend to agree with that because I see more people go out, both of them going out and getting drunk than I do success stories. You know, when that, but I'm grateful for Shannon because if it hadn't been for Shannon, I would have had a reputation in Alcoholics Anonymous like I did out there in the street. And, uh, but anyway, these, these ladies loved me and threw me into service work real early and, and I made a mistake of telling my sponsor what I wanted to be and, and, uh, I told her I always thought about being a nurse and, and Debbie had moved away at this time and my sponsor, my, my sponsor became the mean lady in the group. Um, you know, the one that I couldn't stand and she couldn't stand me. She would tell Debbie, get her away from me. <laughs> you know, but I learned to love Marie and all she wanted from me was, you know, and, and thank God for her because that woman loves Alcoholics Anonymous um, and loves the woman coming in off the streets. And I'm so grateful that the guys in that group loved me like a sister. And they didn't hit on me. And, uh, you know, what we need when we come in here is love, not sex. And I'm so grateful that those guys treated me like a sister instead of anything else. I'm so grateful for that. Um, I went back to school. I got my GED. It took me uh, four years to get a two-year degree. I ended up graduating with an associate degree in nursing and started doing that. And, um, you know, after five years of sobriety, that guy that I was... Uh, Barry, too, ended up going back out, and, and I ended up, uh, you know, okay, I'll just go on. Um, he did. He went back out, and, um, you know, and a lot of things happened, and I ended up wanting to do some travel nursing. I started doing some, um, I never thought I had any street sports, never thought I could do anything. And, and uh, when I got into nursing, I absolutely love pathophysiology of the body. I love what the body is. It's just amazing. And um, and uh, I found that love, and, uh, and I really took off in that. And I uh, did a lot of different things in nursing. And and um, I decided I wanted to be a travel nurse. And, and I at seven years of sobriety, I started doing travel nursing, and I would go from one place to a, another, and you could stay for three months and then go somewhere else. And, and you know, when I was so involved in this home group, when I left that home group, it was one of the hardest things I ever did. And I would go to meetings when I first left town, and I would go to meetings, and I'd stick my hand out, and I'd tell you who I was. And, and uh, you know, and sooner or later, it's kind of hard to stick your hand out anymore when you don't feel like you're getting anything back, and I just stopped. 
you know, for two years as I was doing this travel nursing, you know, my meetings went from six meetings a week, went to five, my five went to four, my four went to three, my three went to two, and then two went to one, and then one every now and then. And, uh, you know, and, and when, I don't know about y'all, but when I'm not drinking, I don't feel right out there. And when I'm not coming to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't feel right in here. And it was a horrible place to be in because I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. Um, going to a meeting once in a blue moon, just don't cut it for me. Started doing a lot of dishonest things and uh, ended up uh, with viral meningitis in um, March of 1988. I thought I was going to die. I lost from 130 pounds down to 88 pounds, nothing. And uh, I really, I'm a critical care nurse at this time, and I really thought I was going to die. Uh, and I was working at a little hospital in Escondido, and and, uh, and these nurses, those travel nurse buddies, they came to the house and they took care of me, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, until I got better. And it was about a month and a half, and and I felt very obligated to them, and I became their designated driver. And here we are, they're going to the clubs and drinking and having a good time, and I'm sitting there with my Diet Coke not fitting in. And it wasn't too long after that, those near beers started looking good to me. I don't know about y'all, but, you know, non-alcoholic beer is for non-alcoholics. <laughs> it has 0.5 percent alcohol in one bottle of that stuff and back home Budweiser's 0.3 percent so I could drink six pack and it's just like drinking a Budweiser you know and and I didn't and I knew exactly what I was doing I really did and there would been there were many times in those years that I was sober in, in Myrtle Beach in the seven years that I was in Alcoholics Anonymous and doing whatever y'all told me to do that I've seen people go back out and not make it back we buried so many people you know, and, and, and I knew this, but there was that, that mental obsession was so great with me. Um, and I really had a hard time trying to figure that out when I came back. And thank God for good sponsorship because Mary Nell helped me figure that out. But anyway, I started drinking that near beer and my roommate Susan at the time, she was like, God almighty, Kathy, how come you drink so much, drink so much of that stuff? And I was drinking a 12 pack of that for lunch. <laughs> That's the hardest drinking I ever did in my life. You know, and, and drinking a case a day, and I'm like, it tastes good, you know. And and uh, what I had done is I'd put that physical back in my body. And I'm here to stand here and tell you today, if you don't ever put that stuff in your body, you don't ever have to deal with that physical part of it ever again. You don't ever have to deal with that again. I don't ever want to deal with that again. And um, October of 98, I picked up that real drink again, and it wasn't no romancing or, or there was no good times. It was right back to the blackouts, and my sobriety car became my drunk car, and I was not able to find anything. I didn't know where my car was most of the time. I was back to the blackout drinking. I'm taking care of patients in uh, cardiovascular intensive care after open heart surgery, and and uh I don't, most of the time I don't even remember being there. And that's who took care of you and I'll see you. And I'm just grateful today that uh, I don't think that I killed anyone. Um, 
I decided in August of 99 to come back home because I thought there were many times I'd tried to go back to a meeting and I'd walk into a meeting and 15 minutes after I was there, I'd want to, you know, I knew I was going to go drink again and, and, um, I'd force myself to pick up a white chip hoping against hope that I wouldn't drink again. And I just couldn't do it. I would leave that meeting and go right straight to the bar, leave that meeting and go right back to the house and do whatever I needed to do. At this time, everything else had fallen away from me. I didn't want to be around people. I didn't want to be around anybody. And um stopped going to the bars on a regular basis, and I become what I used to call an old bitty closet drinker. And, uh, you know, and I thought if I come home that maybe maybe I want to get sober again. So I moved in with my little sister and her husband and her two boys, and all I did was bring the trash in her home. And... um I stayed there for a couple of months, and I couldn't drink the way I wanted to, so I decided to move out, and I got a little, what I call my two-bedroom tomb. It was one of them little tiny cracker box trailers down on the lake, and it was away from anybody, and I could drink the way I wanted to, and that's exactly what happened. And from November of 1999 to April of 2000, I don't remember a whole lot about anything. I'd come to, there were vodka bottles, wine bottles, packs of rooming cans, laying all around me. I don't even know how I got it. And, uh... And so there was not too many of sober breaths. And, man, I could not drink enough to get your voice and your head, your your face out of my head. Y'all ruined it. Y'all did. And I'm going to tell you, it's the most horrible feeling that, that I've ever experienced in my life is to God want to be here so bad and not be able to make it back. So that time period, I decided that Alcoholics Anonymous wasn't going to work for me again, that I was going to have to be one of those people that died. Because it wasn't going to work for me. And, um, April, twi- April, uh, it was a Tuesday before the 28th, whatever day that was. Uh, <laughs> my little sister called me and asked me if I wanted to go see a wrestling match, and I said yes. And my whole family grew up in wrestling, and I'm so, we know it's fake, and if you didn't, I didn't mean to bust your bubble. But, um, Y'all got rodeos around here, not too much wrestling, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, I said yes, and I'll get, I went. I don't remember going. I don't remember coming home. I remember on Wednesday I called her. She had very short answers, yes, no, bye, hung up. On Thursday I went to see her, and this whole time I'm drinking. I, I can't not drink. I just can't not drink. Um, and, by, and I walked into her house, and, and, uh, and when I did, I seen the look of disgust that I hope I would never see on anybody's face again. And, and uh, she looked at me, and she said, Kathy, I love you, but I don't want you around. I can't stand to watch you killing yourself. I don't want you around me. I don't want you around my boys, and I don't want you around my husband. And she basically kicked me out of her life. Um, and I went home, and I drank, and I drank, and my body was drunk, but my mind wasn't. I'm sure a lot of y'all been there before. And um, and I ended up passing out, and the next day, that was uh, April 28th, it was on a Friday morning, and when I came to that morning, I was as cold as I'd ever been inside. And I couldn't go on the way I was going, and I just wanted Mary to go around and stop, and I wanted off. I ain't calling nobody. The only thing I did, I did call and find out where a meeting was. I didn't call for help. It wasn't what I was going for. The only thing I could think about was when we would bury those people who didn't make it back to Alcoholics Anonymous was they would say, the old timers look at you and say, some of them have to die so that others could live. And that's all I could hear in my head. <laughs> you know, and that's all I thought about. 
So I found a meeting that night, and I went, and uh, that was the 3H group in Gastonia. And I pulled up in that meeting at 7.30, and there was a lot of people out in the parking lot. And I remember looking, and I thought, that, well, if I can't, you know, if you know, if I've got to die, maybe somebody can live. And I you know, full intentions of killing myself. And I picked up my 45. It was already cocked. And all I had to do was unlock it. I picked up my 45, and I put it to my head. And as I'm unlocking it, I hear a voice in my head that said, try it one more time. People say that God don't speak to you, but I believe He spoke to me that night. And um, and I put that gun down under the seat, and I walked in that meeting, and um, and there was a little old lady named Dorothy there. And thank God for Dorothy, you know. She didn't say, "Do you think you're going to make it this time?" She grabbed my hand and said, "Welcome home, honey." And I'm here to say to anybody who's out there that's coming back, welcome home. I know that you don't have to go back out to get more than one white chip. You can stay right here. You don't have to go anywhere else to get what I got. When I came back, I didn't have to have somebody tell me to get a home group and get involved or to work the steps. I knew all this stuff. I knew what I had to do. And I had somebody tell me, you know, you need to forget about them years you had in Alcoholics Anonymous because it didn't work for you. And I'm here to tell you that's not true. Alcoholics Anonymous has always worked for me. It's me who didn't know what I was supposed to do. I've looked back many, many times and tried to see where I was at and where my thinking was when I went back out. And Mary Nell, God bless Mary Nell, um, I ended up with a sponsor. Uh, I got the sponsor named Mary Nell. She had 30-something years of sobriety, and she was a little old, feeble. Well, she wasn't feeble. Mary Nell was, she was pretty much feisty woman, and, and, um, she talked like a man, so he's kind of scared over when she spoke, you know. And and I remember the first time I went to her house and sat at her table, I told her I had some financial issues. She said, "You got what?" I said, "I got some financial issues." She said, "Honey, you don't have issues. Issues are what they have on Capitol Hill. You have character defects. It's called irresponsibility. Put a name on it." And she would never let me use that broad term of issues on anything. So. And I, and I slip that out. I use that with my girls, and sometimes that word will slip out, and I'll say, what would you say? <laughs> I love the girls I sponsor. And um, I'd be forever grateful for another thing Mary Neal told me, too. She said, I don't ever want to hear you say I act like that because I'm an alcoholic, or I do that because I'm an alcoholic, because that's just an excuse to continue bad behavior. Millions and billions of people in the world have the same character defects as you do. You're no different. And um, and I'm grateful for that. Um, I'm grateful for what I've been taught in Alcoholics Anonymous about the unconditional love. You know, the God of my understanding has always been something like, you know, you better not do that. You're going to burn in hell if you do. And uh, my my the God of my understanding has always been fire and brimstone. My mom took us to church when we were young, and I tried really hard, and I never really felt like I fit in in that in that place. There was one time when I was maybe 12, you know, when they'd come and get you on a little church bus, and you're singing Kumbaya, I might have felt, felt part of, you know. And um, But from the time I started doing the things I, do, I, I was doing, I never felt like God wanted anything to do with me. And when I was sober before, there were many different things that had happened in my life that I knew there was something outside of me working. But I thought it was you. And when Mary Nell and I went back through this fourth and fifth step and was trying to look at why and what happened to me, is, um, 
You know, that my higher power had become my home group and my sponsor. And when I left that home group and that, and that sponsor, I left that higher power there. And I believe exactly what the big book talks about when it says we cannot let up on the, on our spirit, I can't remember the exact words, but we can't let up on our spiritual condition or we cannot let up on this, whatever it says. Y'all know what I'm talking about, most of you anyway. But we can't rest on our laurels. You know, and, um, and that, um, and I had to find a power greater than myself. And that's what I've done since I've been back in Alcoholics Anonymous is, uh, is trying to, uh, uh, I heard our buddy talking this morning, Steve, about, um, you know, about not being, or I don't remember which one when you guys thought said it anyway, but about defining God. You don't have to define him anymore. And, and, um, but I had to find a way to define what my higher power was, and Mary Nell helped me do that. You know, and, and I have one simple word. My God is the God of love. That's it. There's nothing about His will or your will or my will. I say God is love. And if it's not love, that's not God. Well, I used to work in the emergency room. I love to get them little old ladies that come in there and they talk about, you know, God gave me a heart attack testing my faith. And I'm like, you know, God didn't throw that KFC down your throat to clot your arteries to test your faith. <laughs> Now, I just don't believe things like that anymore. I believe the book, and I love, and, and I heard somebody say it in a meeting. We got here early Thursday, and we went to the Big Book group in Dallas, and it was awesome meeting, and I heard somebody talk about, you know, the, the only opinion in the book is the doctor's opinion, and the, story, and the rest of it is experience, period. And I love that. Um, it gave me some more things to think about. Yeah, I love what our book talks about, um, that the spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. It's not something that I can go sit in a meeting for an hour a day and talk about honesty and love and, and uh, justice. And it's something that I have to take out into my world every day. And that's how God's come to me. You know, it's not been, it's been through other people and through other things. And, and I have kind of this weird relationship with God. The other day I was, it was probably in August and, and I want to tell this just because, you know, my caliber of nurse would never be found dead where I'm at right now. And I, and there's a lot of ego mixed in there, you know, and I've always been open heart, you know, kind of like the, the drama. Love everything about it. The emergency room. Never know what you're going to get. You know, and that's how I lived my life when I was out there on the streets. I didn't care. I just, you know, give me that stuff. And, and um, you know, in about August, I told, I kind of told God, I said, look, dude, I want out of the hospital. So I'm going to do the footwork and I'll let you take care of the rest. And uh, and I put in applications everywhere and did what I was supposed to do. And I'm never really concerned about not getting a position, you know, or this job falling through. I'm going, okay, well, it's interesting to see what I'm going to get because I know I'm going to get something different. You know, all I got to do is pray about it, you know. And and um, I had a dream about my grandma. My, my grandmother, after I went back out, you know, I was out out there for a year and a half. It's all I could stand. And I, I would I couldn't stand anymore. And, and my grandma died in that time period, and I love my grandma to death. And my grandma died a lo- lonely old woman in a little nursing home. And I've always had a lot of guilt for that. And I had this dream that I was sitting beside my grandma on her deathbed, and I was able to hold her hand while while she passed away. And 
When I woke up, I had this idea about going into a nursing home, and I go, wait, I'll do anything but that. I'm not going to work in no nursing home. You can forget it. I'm not doing this. And it uh, wasn't too long, kept eating at me and kept eating at me, and about a month later, I decided to go visit this nursing home, and I walked in there, and there's this little old lady in a wheelchair, and she goes, ma'am, ma'am, can you help me find my home? I don't know where my home is. Can you help me find my home? About a 102-year-old lady, and... And I remembered seeing her name because she had the name on the wheelchair. And I took her. I said, yeah, I know where your home is. And I took her around to her room. And, and she sat down. She said, sit down here, honey, and let me talk to you for a little bit. And I said, okay. And she was holding this little stuffed puppy. And uh, we talked for a few minutes. And then she handed me this puppy. And she said, here, take my puppy. He is the best unconditional love. And I knew in that moment where I was supposed to be. And I've been there. And I can tell you this. From that moment. To this, I absolutely love what I'm doing, and I'm in a I'm in a nursing home, and there's a lot of people in there. Doesn't have anybody comes and sees them, and and I work at 11 at night to seven in the morning. There's lots of times I get to spend in there, and I get to make that amends to my grandmother that I never thought I could make, and maybe to your grandma too. Um, married, uh, have a wonderful husband, and Mike's in the program also. Uh, you know, we we uh, just built a, our dream home up on top of a mountain, and um, and it's not that Alcoholics Anonymous gave me money when I got here. Alcoholics Anonymous taught me to be responsible, and uh, from that, the banks got the money, <laughs> not me. But Alcoholics Anonymous taught me to be responsible, and you gave me love and understanding, and I'm so grateful for that. If you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous. Man, stick around. I do not hold to the fact that I am a miracle. I believe that I am, that Alcoholics Anonymous is the miracle, and I am blessed to be a small part of that. That's what I believe. Um, Mary Nell, uh, June 10th, 2005, Mary Nell passed away. And, uh, that was really tough. You know, it was really tough. Looked around for a sponsor, and I really honestly believe that you have to have respect for somebody that's going to help you run your life. And I finally found a lady, and some of y'all know her. Her name's Julie, and I absolutely adore her because she's got a lot of Mary Nell in her. A lot of relationships in my life have been restored, and and I'm going to close with this one last one. And uh, you know, me and my mom have never barely been close. I always had a love-hate relationship with my mother. Could not stand my mother. When I came in, Mary Nelson, when I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous, Mary Nelson said, I want you to go to your mama. I don't want you to ask her what anything about her life. I want you to say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. I want you to ask her how she's doing. Don't tell her how to run her life. Just go sit and listen. And, oh, my God, it was hard. I'd white-knuckle it. And I would, somehow or another, I'd make, I'd, I would mess up and I'd end up making her cry. You know, and, and um, a year goes by, and I'm not white-knuckling it anymore, and I can be with my mom for about two hours without white-knuckling it, you know. And uh, Mary Nell would say, you just go be a kind and loving daughter. You don't try to tell her what to do with her life. You accept her for who she is. She's don't She don't have the program you do. And I'm going to tell you what, when... A year, maybe a year and a half, my mom grabbed me and hugged me and 
had my head on her shoulder and made me cry like a baby because she said, you know, you've always been a tough child to love and you've never let me love you until now. And I never knew that. I thought she didn't love me. I thought it was her, not me. You know, and uh, I can remember when I was 15 years old, I'd stole some money from my mom and they took a warrant out on me and we're standing across the courtroom from from my mom and I'm looking at her with all the disgust in her and I could ever muster up, why did you do this to me? You know, and my mama's got tears going down her face and I never could understand, well, you did it, you know. And I just had that that rebellion and that disgust of her, you know. And my mom used to look at me and she said, you got the pure devil in you. Me and Mike stopped by on the way to the airport and uh, at my mom's house and my mom grabs me and hugs me and she said, oh, you're my angel. And that's what you've given me. You've given me the ability to love and have relationships with other people. I love the girls that I sponsor. And uh, I feel like I found the secret to Alcoholics Anonymous, which I never had before. And I didn't know what it was. And I always thought somebody was keeping a secret away from me and and just keeping it away from me. And I feel like today I found that secret. And uh, because I know the root of all my troubles is selfishness and self-centeredness. And all I, and Mary Nell taught me this, and I'll be forever grateful. She said, Kathy, that first year, you better have your eyes turned inward, looking at yourself, arming yourself with the facts about yourself. And after that year, you turn your eyes outward to those you can help, and they better always stay outward. And that's what I'm here to say today is, is I hope my eyes always stay forward and not inward, because I believe when they turn back on me and I'm worried about me again, that's when I get in trouble. And so that God center helping somebody else is the best thing, is the way that I've established a relationship with God in my understanding, which is pure love. If you're coming back to Alcoholics Anonymous, welcome home. If somebody's around you saying, oh, well, he ain't going to make it, go find somebody that says welcome home. And uh, again, I want to thank the committee, and uh, thank you. Love Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.